trust in money remains the bedrock of stability. The soul of money is trust. I, I think we are not paying sufficient attention to the law of unintended consequences. In the immortal words of the doors, the time to hesitate is through. Heavily armed clown. How you going, man? Good, good. How did you discover Bitcoin? How did I? Well, I, I want to say I, I'm pretty sure that the first time I heard about Bitcoin was on Reddit at some point when I was in college. Because I was really into Reddit when I was in college. So this was like 2010, 2011, 2012-ish time frame. I don't know exactly when the first time I heard about it. All I know is that the first time I heard about it, I basically thought, oh, cool. And then didn't think about it again for probably five years or so. Hmm. Um, I don't think I had any thoughts about it. I just remember people talking about it. Like I remember hearing the word and, and people occasionally maybe mentioning price, you know, on, on some of like the techie or subreddits back in the day. Um, and that was like a lifetime ago when I look back at my life. Um, it wasn't, I didn't really start paying attention to it until uh, I would say probably about 27, 2017, like early to mid 2017. And it was kind of coincidental because I was also simultaneously um, studying economics, reading a lot of Austrian economics and, uh, as well as like learning how to trade equities, uh, in particular penny stocks. And those things were kind of, it was kind of just like a knowledge journey at the time for me. Like I, I had discovered Austrian economics prior to discovering Bitcoin, um, uh-huh. and then had kind of discovered Bitcoin a little bit later and said, Oh, this actually is really interesting technology. Um, and it took me a little bit of time to kind of connect because I was looking at it as like, oh, crypto is an investment. I wasn't necessarily right. looking at, oh, Bitcoin is a monetary solution to the things written about by Hayek and um, Mises or whatever. So I would, I don't think it was really probably until 2018 that I really finally said, oh, okay, I understand now. Bitcoin is trying to be money because it solves the problems of um, trusted third parties in, in money. Uh, and that was like really from there, I think, where my quote unquote career in Bitcoin kind of took off. And I never really looked back after that. I kind of just like went full speed ahead. And, and now I actually work full time on Bitcoin software. So, Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. So it's, it's you know, it's a few years. It seems like a familiar um, trajectory for most, I guess. It's very rare that um, people first year about bitcoin and they're like sweet yeah that sounds awesome let's uh let's partake um even eric voskio a couple of weeks ago um you know had uh had reservations when he when he first heard about it which which is pretty cool um it's interesting that you found austrian economics and had learnt about that before 
discovering Bitcoin and going down that rabbit hole. So mm-hmm. most people's journey, I dare say, um, is discovering of Bitcoin and then that leads them down a rabbit warren of, of Austrian econ and such, you know, particularly if right. they've read the Bitcoin standard. And that's certainly the case with me. Um, so that's a really interesting perspective to bring to Bitcoin prior is this knowledge of sound money and um, axiomatic action and all of these things that are embedded within this Austrian economic, um, what would you call it, a thesis? Yeah, yeah, and I wouldn't say that I... I wouldn't say that I already had like a fully fleshed out understanding of all of the economics of it, like before Bitcoin, just that I had kind of already been exposed to it. And that was kind of what led me to it. Certainly, like, I think I probably owe a lot to Saifedean's book um, in terms of like helping me understand how Bitcoin was the puzzle piece that fit, you know, into the, the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, like for me, it was a little weird because. I've always just been an avid reader. And in particular, I've always liked to read things that I shouldn't. Um, <laughs> and when I say like that I shouldn't, I mean like seek out the forbidden knowledge, so to speak. Um, like, and, and, and that, that came from like a pretty young age. Like I can remember my dad reading me Solzhenitsyn when I was like eight. Whoa. So like it, it wasn't Whoa. like I was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's the kind of world I grew up in. So it was like, to me, um, the most interesting thing in the world was at the time, um, I was I was captivated by Donald Trump, not so much because I was like politically obsessed with him, but because I found like his how effective his rhetoric was incredibly interesting. And I found this whole concept of like political theory really interesting because Donald Trump kind of like lit the world on fire at the time. Um, so what had happened was I was on Amazon and I bought a couple of books, um, two of which were written by Donald Trump. I bought The Art of the Deal and make America great again, I think was the name of the other one. Right. And I, Amazon does this thing where it will like recommend other things to add to your cart. Yeah. And spooky. it recommended Ron Paul's and the fed. Um, mm. Amazon did. And I was like, Oh, I've heard of Ron Paul. I've know some smart people that really liked Ron Paul that I knew in the past. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take that too, because I don't know anything about Ron Paul and I want to learn about like, what does Ron Paul think about? Um, so I bought those three books and I read all three of them but the one that was by far and above the one that captivated me the most was Ron Paul's and the Fed. Um, and that led me to basically what happened was I read the footnotes um, all throughout that book that point to lots of different Austrian a- economic sources. And right. I uh, started perusing those. Like I read The Creature from Jekyll Island. I read um, Hayek's Rota Serfdom. I read um, Holzman's um, Ethics of Money Production. Mm-hmm. I read. Um, and it just kind of like went through the gambit at that point. And then, and it wasn't probably for another year or so after I kind of fell down that rabbit hole that I discovered Bitcoin and, um, for sure, like safe. And cause I remember no, the noted podcast, which was Pierre Richard and Bitstein, which yes, they so. don't do it quite as much as they used to, but they were the ones that kind of, um, orange pilled me. Like they were kind of the ones that were taking me from crypto to Bitcoin and they were how I first learned about Safedine and Safedine's book because I remember they had him on the show to rem- promote his book. And that was kind of like, I would say pretty close to about the time that I was starting to get why Bitcoin and not just crypto. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, just going through that random recommendation from Amazon and then, you know, a lot of people skip over the footnotes, but that's where a lot of treasure 
uh, lies with respect to the subject that you're clearly interested in if you're reading a book about it. And oh, yeah. obviously, you know, you can dive in deeper to where that particular author has come from. And um, I was cu- I'm curious to, to and you didn't you didn't check um, human action within that list. Was that uh, was that because you I, saw I it have, and you're like, fuck that? That's a 900 page book. I'm not reading that. Well, no, I actually have read Human Action, but I didn't read it until later. Um, uh-huh. I've read both Human Action and Rothbard's um, Man, Economy, and State, yes. which is like an equally dense tome. And yeah, the I, I love I love Mises. There's like a special place in my heart for Mises, but Rothbard, I I identify with so much more in terms of like the way he thinks about things and his ability to um, make a case, like a logical case for certain positions uh, and just entirely demolish other positions. Like Rothbard is by far my favorite thinker when it comes to economics and political history. Um, so yeah, I, I gravitated more towards him as, mm-hmm. as time goes on, but um, yeah, I have read human action, but it definitely wasn't until probably 2019 like when i was really heavy getting into bitcoin and and um someone recommended that i start reading treatises instead of just um you know the the shorter books so i i did i tried to read like and i also read atlas shrugged around that same time as well that book's like a thousand pages long yeah these are i would never read that again i, I actually don't even recommend that book to people i know people love that book but it's like two thirds of it is like descriptions of street corners. So it's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've stopped and started that book so many times and I've just found the writing a bit clunky, to be honest. Um, and similar with human action and what you were saying with respect to Rothbard, um, again, due to the scarcity of time in my current situation, the the luxury to be able to sort of sit down, I, I never took um, took a full advantage. I feel like I've completely missed a lifetime of, of education here prior to um, 2020. But my point is that when I read Rothbard, whenever I am researching for something or trying to understand something, it's usually him that I'll gravitate to first because of the clarity with which he, yeah, as you just said, um, espouses an argument. You know, there's far more... Uh, it, it's far clearer and easier to read than Mises. And I don't know if that was because of a language thing, but um, as a, I think it was partially that, but also like, you know, Rothbard was Mises' understudy. So he, he kind of learned a lot from Mises and took a lot of his ideas and like it built upon them. Um, you know, and, and then like in the same vein, like Mises built on top of a lot of other people that came before him. Like, I want to say like, like Bob Bavirk and, um, uh, Adam Smith and um, you know like we, we all stand on the shoulders of giants right mm-hmm. I mean and Rothbard is just was kind of lucky it was like Saifedean is lucky in the sense that like he came after Rothbard you know what I mean because it just it distilled so many things and made them so much easier to understand um, than, than they were they, like they had been so much more arcane previously like if, if you could only turn to human action and don't get me wrong like human action is a great book like it changed the way that I look at the world for sure yeah uh, I- but it is very difficult to read it's it's those I actually uh, during the the well, the start of you know in the start of twenty twenty when the world lost its mind um, and we all got shuttered in our homes I was like right well this is a good opportunity as any to start reading Human Action and where I am uh, it's not too 
um, well, at the time, I couldn't really get a hold of a physical copy of it. It was it was it was going to cost a lot of money. I reached out to the to the Mises Institute in Alabama, and they were like, "Look, for us to send you this book, you might as well just you know, um, it's just too expensive. So jump on our website. You can download the PDF or the EPUB or whatever." So I went out and bought a Kindle and basically downloaded onto that and spent. A number of days trying to get through that, but you know my tiny brain um, struggled to pass the information properly, and I think I got distracted and started reading the fourth turning instead, and then sovereign individual, because <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, um, those are uh, a little bit more um, like uh, junk food. Uh, yeah, I, I look at them that way. A hundred percent, man. Like it's 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 that's um, the crest of the wave. You know, it's it's the stuff at the at the top, and it's the same. You know, with all due respect to Safe's book, the, the Bitcoin Standard, that's like the portal to this stuff. And then, mm-hmm. if you are compelled to go down this Austrian rabbit hole to, you know, through people like Hans Hermann Hopper, which I again find actually a lot more legible than a Mises, mm-hmm. and then a Rothbard. Yeah. Hey, uh, Hazlitt as well. Hazlitt, right? Listening. Economics in One Lesson. Great book, highly recommended. And now, you know, we're so lucky. We've just got um, Per Bylands, um, How to Think About an Economy, the primer, mm-hmm. which is like mm-hmm. five bucks. Yeah. You know, everyone yeah, and, and should And we got to give the book. Mises Institute a lot of credit. You know, they, they've made so much material available for free on their website. Like more or less everything Rothbard and Mises ever did. I mean, you can find in some way, shape or form for free on the internet, which is pretty fantastic. Oh, it's nuts. It's nuts. And it's such a massive help if you're trying to think through an issue because you just download the pdf and then you can do a control f and off you go you can kind of try and pinpoint rather than trawl through which mm-hmm. i found super valuable um that's interesting so when you sort of read the bitcoin standard that then was sort of like the the final piece of the puzzle to unlock this connection between austrian econ which you'd taken an interest in and this new thing that you were discovering, Bitcoin, and you had changed your perception from it being a technology to a money that removes trusted third parties in a digital way. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Um, I don't. I don't think. It, I don't think it was just the Bitcoin standard that right. I could thank for that revelation. I think that was just like part of it. Um, because I, I like when I first started learning about Bitcoin, like intent in uh, intentionally, um, I sat down and watched all of those Bitcoin Blackboard series with uh, I forget the guy's name, D'Angelo, I think his name was. Um, he doesn't do Bitcoin stuff anymore. He's like not into Bitcoin anymore. But his videos were fantastic. Like they were fantastic technical explanations of um, like how the cryptography worked. Uh, like the basics of how Bitcoin functioned and essentially how it was unstoppable technology. Um, and it, it was really that that I think first turned me on. So like what, what Safe's book did for me and like what the noted guys did for me and like what J.W. Weatherman did for me whenever he launched Cypherpunk University was help me better understand why Bitcoin and not crypto. Mm-hmm. Because I think by the time Safe's book had come out, I, I definitely was like on board with Bitcoin. I was just saying sure bitcoin and ethereum and Mm -hmm. litecoin and ripple and like on and on and on down the list um and i it wasn't until like i i started 
So two things happened. I was doing a lot of due diligence on a lot of these altcoins that I owned or was considering owning and finding out that they were just all hot garbage. Um, and and they were and the, my advantage here was that I was heavily into trading penny stocks at the time because I was living in the Middle East and the US market opened about the same time that I would get home from work on days when I would come home from work. So um I would just day trade. So like I'd come home, I'd grab a beer, crack open a beer, sit down and have dinner and the markets would open and I would just like day trade in the evenings because it was something to do and it was a way to try to make money. And like I said, I was trading penny stocks. And the more I learned about all of these other cryptocurrencies, the more I felt like I was reading like a penny stock investor prospectus. So like if, if <laughs> there's, probably, there's not like a ton of people out there that like avidly trade penny stocks or like get really into the community, but it is remarkably similar in terms of like the slime content in the penny stock worlds as it is in um, like cryptocurrencies, quote unquote. So safe helped me understand like safe noted JW all helped me like collectively understand here's why Bitcoin is unique and, and different than all of these copycat affinity scams. Um, and that's who I think where that was like the real like the real transformative moment for me i think when when i finally understood okay bitcoin is the solution to this problem not blockchain not crypto yeah nice nice there is uh you know there is that cost of tuition and the opportunity cost of spending time and energy on dumb shit like penny stocks and crypto altcoins and shit coins and stuff i've been there not so much in the shitcoin space. I was um, very lucky in the fact that you know, I was guided away from a lot of that, but certainly shitty equities and penny stocks and stuff. Absolutely. This we've kind of already touched on, but um, we can dive it deeper and we can pull on some threads. But why do you think that you are open and able to discovering Bitcoin? You know, we mentioned obviously your Austrian economics education or self-education, but, you know, your dad's reading you Solzhenitsyn at eight years old, that's got to play into it somewhere as well. What's this sort of, where's the formative foundation, the capstone that sort of allow you to, once you reach that precipice, dive in and be like, okay, cool. That's an interesting question, but I don't think I have a great answer for it. I, I just know that I've kind of always been a bit against the grain. Like my whole life, I've always been a bit against the grain, just different from everyone else in ways that I can't, struggle to put into words um i guess a little bit more curious a little bit a little bit more unafraid to ask questions a little bit less uh i don't want to say like respectful i don't want to say disrespectful of authority like i don't feel like i'm disrespectful of authority but a little bit more um questioning of authority like not not just so all assuming about um taking whatever i hear at face value and mm -hmm. and I, a lot of that is just like a byproduct of experiences that i had in life um that early on kind of shattered the illusion of the matrix for me a little bit like <laughs> like i can think back to like some pretty formative things like i, I mentioned hearing uh, my dad reading me solzhenitsyn which was obviously really formative because there were like other types of books and conversations like like that like i mean that's heavy that, dude that for really an eight-year-old yeah right? for sure yeah <laughs> and uh uh, he didn't read me. He read me the one about the the fictional story about the guy in the in the gulag. Not the not like he didn't read me like the gulag archipelago. Right. Okay. Uh, cool. Me, uh, Clarify. I forget that. the name of the book. Yeah. Yeah. I forget the name of the book he read. It's um, the a day in the life of Ivan, something or other. I forget the name of it. But uh, anyway, um, I can also remember like getting in trouble, like in some pretty serious trouble as a kid, 
for things that really weren't like a very big deal to me in my world, um, like, like bringing a pocket knife to school and like getting kicked out of school for that. Um, but as not as like, not in like a way, cause for me, I was like a kid that grew up in the woods, like building forts and shooting squirrels and playing in the mud and whatever. Mm -hmm. So like a pocket knife was a tool. It was like a thing that I always had with me because it was useful and I always needed it. Right. And I pretty sure I took it to school to show my friend who sat next to me in class. And he told the teacher that I had a pocket knife. And then they took me to the principal's office and oh, a grown man. man grilled me for like 20 for, for actually for like hours for like the rest of the day, you know, about like, why did you do this? Who were you going to hurt? What were you going to do? And, and I'm just like confused and crying because I'm like eight years old and I'm just like upset because I'm being treated like a criminal and I don't understand even what I did wrong. Um, you know, like at the time that was like disruptive for me, like it was very kind of um, like emotionally difficult and, and uh, those types of things. But like as I got continued to get older and was able to kind of reflect on those experiences, I realized that it shattered a lot of the illusions that I had, like in my youth of like how, how, how together do adults have everything, you know, like, cause when right. you're a kid, you think that adults like have all the answers and they, mm -hmm. they know everything already. And like, yes, whatever they say is true and correct. Uh, but that isn't the case. And like, it's the journey to getting to the point where you're willing to accept that and kind of internalize that and deal with the cognitive dissonance that comes with, um, having your preconceived notions shaken, mm -hmm. uh, is, is, I think a mark of like humility for one, but it's also a mark of like intellectual honesty and maturity and emotional maturity. Um, and it's just for whatever reason, just something that I always kind of got just probably mostly through the school of hard knocks, but I was just lucky enough to like be in all the right classes, so to speak. Um, so like when Bitcoin, <laughs> Bitcoin came along, yeah, it was pretty world shaking for me, but it wasn't like I can't accept this. I won't accept this. Like I, I have to fight against this. It was just one of those things where it's like, as soon as I heard how Bitcoin worked, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. As soon as I heard, you know, um, Hayek talk about the importance of private property or, or, um, you know, the, the disadvantage of bureaucracy or on and on and on down the list. I'm just like, yeah, that makes sense. That's logical. Like I follow what he says there. I follow him from A to B to C and everything he said makes sense. Therefore I understand it. And I now, um, loosely hold this opinion myself because, you know, like until I can figure out a way to logically debunk it, uh, it, it makes sense for me. And like, that is not a difficult process for me. Um, but that doesn't mean that I haven't had to go through my fair share of like cognitive distance in life. I think I just went through a lot earlier than most people. <laughs> That's it's shattering when you're in front of the principal for doing something that you thought was completely imperfectly okay as in, you know, carrying a tool, which yeah, happens to be a pocket knife, but, um, it's a tool and you've only ever framed it in that context and then to have that. Well, that was how my dad taught me. That was yeah. what my dad taught me. Like when he gave me my first pocket knife, he said, this is a tool and you need to respect it and, and right use it on. as a tool when necessary. And, um, and make sure that you don't hurt yourself with it because you know, tools come with a lot of responsibility. That was like what I was taught. So mm -hmm. it was like the idea that it was a weapon to me, like in my mind, it was just like totally, earth shattering. Like it just did not make any sense. I was like, why would I use this as a weapon? Like I would go get my bow and arrow or like a gun or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've got plenty of weapons at home, bro. Yeah. Like I, I can, it, it's interesting that like, uh, that, that reverence that your father instilled in you for this, for this thing. Um, you know, again, it comes back to just how influential our, our parents are on us and the principal or whoever the teacher was, that was grilling you and 
and chewing you out, you know, clearly had a completely different perception of this thing. And the, the mere fact that he was older than you and, you know, quote unquote, an adult meant that he was in a power of authority and, and, um, you know, what, what eight year old kids going to sort of, um, fight back against that. It's just going to be completely jarring to hear that this thing that you've been told to have respect and reverence for and to not use it as a weapon is um, now being considered one. Like the, the, the intent that they foisted upon you, thinking that you were going to somehow, I don't know, do something dangerous with it at school is... Yeah, yeah, pretty strange. Yeah. But, I, you know, it's like kind of part of like the whole... Well, I, I have a lot of issues. Like I could soapbox a lot about the problems with like public school and the emasculation of young boys um, you know, in the public school setting, because like boys, they like to be outside. They like to build stuff and dig in the mud and take things apart and solve problems and play sports and stuff like that. And not that there isn't a place for sitting down in a classroom and learning, but, um, it's very, and I'm not, I'm no spring chicken anymore either. Like I'm in my thirties, but like, it's very, when I was a kid, it was, it was very like emasculating a lot of like the way public school was was treated like young boys. And, and I think that was like kind of part of it too. It was like, um, I was just fortunate that I lived in an area where I was able to spend like a lot of my time kind of outside in the woods, learning lessons, like learning life lessons, like on my own time At play. rather than like hoping. Yeah, exactly. Rather than like hoping to be taught those lessons by like the television or a teacher or something. Yeah. Having actual first hand um, first-hand responsibility Conflict resolution yeah for, yeah for sorting out your own education i guess and and understanding mm-hmm. if i do this then you know that happens and ooh, that wasn't flash or whatever um mm-hmm. yeah we, we lost a lot of that i think um i mean just the whole structure of sitting 30 kids or more in, in a classroom with one person to stand up for 40 minutes and hopefully <laughs> condense some sort of like education and all the while you're trying to you know catch up with your friends and finish that conversation you had at recess or whatever and you know the bell's going to ring in 35 minutes anyway so you know what's what's the point whatever they're talking about is pretty boring or they're reading from a textbook i can remember like lessons where we'd usually we'd literally just walk out of the classroom and this was in sort of more more like senior year and um Mm -hmm. yeah the the teacher would just sit down open the textbook start reading from it and we were meant to be sort of writing it down and it's like this is not learning fuck it we're going to you know we would drive up to maccas or something it's just we'd go home and watch mori povich actually which was far more educational i think (laughs) yeah probably um yeah the other thing, like kind of in that same vein too, that I'm sure especially anybody that went to like a public school would sympathize with and probably even like a lot of private schools um, is like things that you were taught that that you were taught as just true fact in school as a child that years later you discovered, oh no, actually that's not true. Um, and I'm not even talking, it doesn't even have to be anything all that consequential. Like I'm not even talking about money and banking. I'm talking about like maybe a fact that you learned about dolphins that years later you learned is actually just like an urban legend and isn't true. <laughs> and, and actually dolphins can't do that. And I, I'm using that as like a hypothetical example. Sure. I can't think of yeah. a good example, but, um, I think those are like little moments of sh- earth shattering cognitive dissonance when you're like, wait a minute. So my third grade science teacher didn't know everything. <laughs> and you're just like, oh crap. <laughs> 
how much other stuff did they teach me that wasn't correct? And you, you, you really got to get over that hurdle fast to, to get anywhere in life. I think as an adult, you got to be willing to say like, okay, I know next to nothing about anything. I think that's, I think that's really what it was for me too, is that it was like, I, I didn't have a, such a large ego that I was afraid of admitting that I didn't have all the answers. I'm sure like in my, in my early youth, like when I was like in my early twenties, like teenage years, especially, I probably did think I knew all the answers and had everything figured out, but I very clearly didn't. Like I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like screwing around all the time. <laughs> and, um, but when I finally got to the point where like I had enough humility and like self-discipline to admit to myself, like, okay, you don't have all the answers. You don't know everything. In fact, you actually know very little. Like when I was honest with myself about, okay, what do you actually feel like you understand? What do you feel like you could explain to someone else and not feel like an idiot making up answers? Um, the answer was very little, right? Like there were most things that I just did not understand. And that was kind of what piqued my curiosity to like read up on certain topics. Like I mentioned, like trying to learn more about Donald Trump's political theory. Cause it was just also over my head. Like I didn't know it. I didn't know what people hated him for. I didn't know what people hated him for. I'm like, okay, what makes him so different from the other politicians and why do they, why do they hate him so much? And, and, you know, that was like kind of an interesting journey, I think. Oh, absolutely. Just the, the, the mere fact that you're in a, in a, a state to be able to even ask that question and then pursue it to its ends is, um, it's a pretty rare thing nowadays. It seems anyway, if you go online, um, to that end, how has discovering Bitcoin changed you? Oh, it's totally changed my life. Um, when I when I was like first learning about Bitcoin, like I was in the military, I was very much a statist until I read Hey, like I said, it wasn't Bitcoin that really like changed this worldview for me. But now I'd probably call myself like a like a medieval anarchist. I don't even I don't even know what I would call myself. Maybe like a like a city state anarchist or something like that. I don't know. Um, or just maybe a minarchist, realistically speaking, because yeah, okay. anarchy probably won't ever function. I don't know. You know, so, I don't know. But um, it, certainly, it's the, it's the ideal, right? And and it's the ideal because I I care so much about like doing what's moral, doing what's ethical, and and that's my moral and ethical foundation is kind of separate from like my belief in Bitcoin and belief in economics. Like it's more so rooted in like my theological hermeneutical understanding of like God and morality and existence and spirituality and those types of things. Um, and I think it's important to kind of recognize that those are like morality and spirituality and ethical ethics are kind of separate when we start talking about things like economics or political theory or those types of things. Um, they're, 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 they're intertwined, but they're, they're separate entities. Um, and I'm, I'm rambling so much. I, I got to try to remember what your question actually was. <laughs> That's cool, man. No, it was how, how, how has discovering Bitcoin changed you? But I mean, oh yeah, you know, yeah, it changed me it's a all... lot. Like I, I went from being like a statist in the military, with no aspirations in life, no plan um, at the time. Well, I mean, like I had plans, but they had been kind of falling apart. Um, and and to to like a software developer, um, you know, like on my own, like running my own business, like being a software developer, working on Bitcoin full time, um, feeling you know financially comfortable just because of my ability to like save my surplus, um, you know, like year over year, just through like diligence and prudence and like financial savviness, like saving my wealth and watching it grow over year over year over year without having to dedicate all of this energy to like trading stocks or like giving all of these management fees to, um, index funds or whatever. Um, 
it has just so totally changed me. I think the biggest thing that it's done for me is that it's given me uh, like autonomy. Like I feel very in control of my life mm. because of what the 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 independence, like the financial independence that Bitcoin has given me. I I don't wake up like afraid of of the day um, because I I'm very secure. Like I'm very comfortable, and that's largely because of like I've put in the work, I've put in the time, I've saved the money to get to the point where I'm comfortable. Um, that's, that's really what it's done for me. It's like, it's, it's very much changed my life. It's been very formative for me. I was thinking about this yesterday. I think, um, the, the, the power to be able to save and have a, a nest egg. That's like a legitimate nest egg that nobody can touch unless you fuck it up. But effectively, it's incredibly difficult for anybody else to steal from you, to access, to take, um, and it's yours. And the power to be able to face any kinds of issues that may crop up as time goes on and practical things happen, like your car breaks down or you know, you get a, a letter from someone saying that you owe them this amount of money or what, whatever the case is, is that you can face those problems far more calmly, rationally, um, and with conviction than if you didn't because you were living still paycheck to paycheck no matter how much you earn. So I was speaking to these beekeepers the other day and they basically gone in and removed all of their hives and I was asking them, what's the recourse here? Like, do you just, that's it? You know, you spent 15, 20 years of your life building up this business creating products from your, your, your honey, from your bees. Now what? And they're like, that's it. We're, we're going to have to source uh, honey from other regions to keep the business going. And I was like, well, that completely contravenes your like local ethos of this local honey and all the rest of it. Now you're basically sourcing from other regions and therefore you're no longer local. Like how can the state just come in and just rug pull you like that? 15, 20 years of, of your business – and uh, and just that's it, game over, overnight. And one of them was like, well, you know, we could do like a class action or something like that, but, you know, who's got the time and energy for that, right? But if you had a savings, a sufficient amount of savings or a pool of capital that you could all pull together, if all of them were stacking, you know, sats and, and saving in Bitcoin, they could literally pull all that money together and have that as recourse to go and, you know, file a class action such that they can't just come in and rug pull you like that. Again, it's expending time and energy, but it just gives you a sense of calmness to be able to fight back against bullshit like that. Yeah, uh, Hayek has a really good quote, and it's, the independence of mind um, or strength of character, independence of mind or strength of character is rarely found among those who cannot be confident that they will make their way by their own efforts. Um, which is basically saying, you know, if, if you're not capable of pulling yourself up by your own bootstrap, so to speak, and, and beyond that, like if you're not capable of, if you don't have the economic means of um, making your own way in life, like you, you're very unlikely to have an independent mind or a strength of character because those things tend to be abrasive uh, in the face of, um, the status quo or like in the face of dependence, like codependence. Yeah. Because that's what you see all around us right now is literally 
people making appeals to authority to help them, fix them, etc. There's countless examples. You can see how much they've just destroyed small businesses over the last three years and yet the vast majority of those small business owners would be appealing to the very same people that destroyed their livelihoods. You know, it's, it's that firefighter arsonist uh, metaphor. You know, it just makes no sense to appeal to the arsonist who's lighting your business on fire to then mm. get in the fire truck and come and put it out. Like it's, there's such a dissonance, a, a cognitive dissonance to be able to put those two things together, mostly because you're just kind of running on vapor the whole time. Mm. What have you learned about the world and yourself since discovering Bitcoin? Um, I've learned that, well, I mean, I don't know. It, I don't know that I've, I don't want to say that I, I, I'm sure I've learned a lot, but I also feel like a lot, I've had a lot of things reinforced more so than like I've learned them from, from nothing. Um, like it's definitely reinforced this idea that this, this anecdote that I have that most people just don't think for themselves. Um, and maybe in a lot of cases aren't even capable of thinking for themselves. And I don't know why that is, but that's certainly something that I've observed in most people is that they're just incapable of it and they need the right person to come along. They need a person that they view as an authority figure in their life to come along and tell them something before they're willing to, um, admit it in most cases. And for whatever reason, that's just like the way most people are wired. I think it's just because it's the way to go through life with the least amount of pain. Um, and if you're, if you're very averse to pain, you're going to be averse to experiences that are uncomfortable. And that is often, you know, being willing to go against the grain in terms of what everyone else believes or what the person in charge believes or what the authorities that be believe or tell you to believe, um, it, it can be very painful, you know, metaphysically, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally to be on the other side, um, socially, like, especially like can be very ostracizing socially. Um, so, so I kind of bring that full circle, like there's plenty of people in Bitcoin that are way, way smarter than me, like way smarter than I'll ever be. Like I will probably never be one of these, protocol level software engineers like it probably just won't ever happen it may happen one day but it probably won't i'm just not smart enough i i my iq is not high enough to be on those guys level maybe it will be one day i hope it will but um maybe it's something like a lot of hard work work right? towards though right like if you've got the sufficient amount of time and energy to expand and to understand you know there's no reason why you couldn't i i don't well right but what my point is that's not really like, so it's kind of, I'm getting off track, but like the kind of the point I was making there was that uh, there's plenty of people in Bitcoin that are way smarter than me, but the vast majority of people are way dumber than me. And that isn't me like tooting my own horn. That's just like a matter of statistical averages. Like if I'm smart, if I'm above average, then most people are below me, like in the, in the distribution of intelligence. So it's, that's, it's very reinforcing in Bitcoin to like be so early to a thing that's often not so easy to understand um, and, and look around and be like, what, what, why does no one like for like years at a time to look around and just be confused why everyone else isn't doing exactly the same thing. Um, but to still be comfortable in, in your position because you're like, well, 
until someone comes along and presents me with new information or successfully persuades me to believe differently than I do, like I know I'm right and I'm comfortable sitting here, even though it might be uncomfortable, like in the day-to-day moments or, or in the social situations where, where people are nudging me in the ribs and being like, so that Bitcoin thing, huh? How's it going? You know, like it, it's, um, I, I don't have like any, any reservations there. Like I know I'm right. And I know most people are too stupid. You know, I, I hope I don't sound too, um, I hope I don't sound like too arrogant when I say that, but I, I can't think of a better way to say it. It's like most people, they just, they aren't willing to put in the time. They aren't willing to do the work. Um, and I know that they're wrong on most things. Then Bitcoin is very reinforcing of that, like in, in all aspects of life, not just about money and technology. I don't think it's arrogance. I think there's a there's a level of confidence because it's it's it comes with the conviction that you um, build up over time. Because you kind of go through that questioning stage and you, you you sort of disbelief and skepticism and all those sorts of things, and that curiosity and um, intellectual honesty compels you to keep going, to keep going, to keep going. And so, when you're f- confronted with a with a um, a flippant comment from one of your friends or family members it's like oh how's that bitcoin thing going <laughs> you're like yeah no it's going good um it's fine yeah cool let me know if you ever want to if you got any questions about it at some point i'm happy to point you to some resources but um you can't help but feel confident and maybe for some people that comes off as arrogance uh i don't think you know, I, me personally, I get accused of being arrogant quite a lot. Um, and, uh, and maybe I am, I don't know, maybe I'm self-deceiving myself. But um, the point is, is that I know that I've done the sufficient amount of work to understand this thing, whatever it is that it may be, such that I can confidently comment upon it um, and it goes beyond just mere opinion, you know? Right. Sure. Yeah, you're 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 at the very least you know that you're not just regurgitating what you heard someone else say. You know that at the very least you're explaining it from from a position of understanding that you hold. Um which I think is something that most people just aren't willing to admit that like hey, I don't actually know what I'm talking about here. I'm just repeating what I heard on the news or what I read in a headline or what I saw on Facebook. Like they're not actually intellectually honest enough to say in the converse because they want you to think that they're smarter than they actually are they want you to think that they're cooler than they actually are and that they're more put together than they actually are because they're afraid of what you'll think about them if you find out that they're not so smart or not so put together um so they want you to think that they know because they read that headline on their facebook feed or because they watched that uh two minute news clip that said Bitcoin was a scam or whatever. Like it, it's easy for them to be, to point to their authority and say, well, <laughs> you're obviously dumb. Like you don't know what you're talking about because look, these people say it's, you're saying all these people are wrong. And you're like, yes, I am saying all these people are wrong. I'm saying everyone is wrong <laughs> except for me and a few other select people that follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's two, there's two threads you could pull on there. Like one, um, when you get into Bitcoin, right, you, you sort of learn a lot about, well, my, my experience was sort of the number go up tech, right, and, and being mm-hmm. compelled by all of that. And so then that leads you over to sort of like a macro framing of things and you want to learn a little bit about macro and uh, economics from that lens. And so, you know, uh, Mia Culpa watched a lot of Rao Pal and his Real Vision oh. stuff and... 
you know, felt compelled to like stay current and understand what the tape was saying. You know, you'd watch like these, these, uh, what were they calling the daily, daily review or something like that on Real Vision and, you know, Mm -hmm. just being compelled by that stuff for such a long time. And then you would have conversations with people who are only watching the news say and they're they're hearing someone discuss something on the news. And so you're technically a layer deeper, but you're still swimming in the same pool of bullshit. And you'd have these kind of back and forths with people like, well, no, you're Mm -hmm. wrong because of these reasons, blah, 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 blah. And And you felt like you were you know, right, because you were yeah, 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 yeah. watching the right <clears throat> totally. stuff. Yeah. And then a few months ago, I think we had a conversation with Max bit by bit and it's kind of waned because like I, I just tuned out of Real Vision pretty quickly, to be honest, when I realized like, oh, it's Bitcoin and, and that's it because everything else is denominated in a shit coin and it's all losing value. So I might as well just, you know, all in. But um, Max from bit by bit, he was like, I used to have these conversations, you know, these macro conversations with people and they're printing this much money and all these things. And then they would just be like, yeah, well, you know, so what? And you're just doing these circular arguments, achieving nothing. Um, And so now you just kind of, instead of having those conversations and trying to convince someone that you're right about all of these stuff, I I just kind of shut up now. I'm just like, yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Let me know uh, how that's working out for you. That's a good place to be for your own sanity. Um, I like to call it, well, I, I've had people ask me like about before, like, cause a lot of people have mentioned, cause you, you mentioned my website, WTF happened in 1971. And a lot of people, especially Reddit, like Reddit hates that website and Reddit hates that website because it doesn't provide an answer. Um, and I've had a lot of people ask me like, what made you want to, build that website in such a way where you're basically just presenting the data and asking a question. And because that's not, that's very uncommon. Like most media online, I would say like, I would wager to say like 99.9% of media online is somebody trying to manipulate you or into selling you something or signing up for something or like they want something from you. Like they need something from you Mm -hmm. so that they can make money and they need you to do something. And, and, and they're there to like try to get you to do whatever that thing is that makes them money um, or gets them clicks or whatever. And for me, it was way more important to ask the question um, because I'm targeting that, that 33% of people that are willing to say, huh, I don't know what happened. Um, maybe I should try to find the answer instead of the people that want me to tell them what I think the answer is, because the people who want me to tell them what the answer is, don't understand the question. Um, So I'm not interested in giving them the right answer. I'm interested in giving them the right question because if they are honest enough with themselves to say, I don't know the answer to this question, then now they're on the right path to actually learning something. But if all they have is the answer and they don't understand the question, then they have useless information and it goes in one ear and out the <laughs> other and you end up talking past each other about things. Uh, and and, and it, honestly, those types of conversations can like ruin friendships. They can ruin family relationships. Um, and, and they're not productive. So like, I, I think people should definitely be careful not to spin their wheels and get so frustrated that like, getting this um this complex where like they think they're just so much smarter than everyone else that they like they literally just can't live on this planet anymore because it's really a destructive place to be it's not a healthy place to be you know like you you need 
you need to figure out how to like interact with people without making every conversation about, um, Hey, have you seen how much money the federal reserve has printed? Like, believe me, <laughs> I know it keeps me awake at night. I get it. Like, but we also have to like meet people where they're at too. No, absolutely. And, and plenty of people, they won't ever understand it. Like you're going to have to buy Bitcoin for them. And when the day comes, you're going to have to say, don't worry, man, I got you. You know what I mean? Like when that day comes, when everything else collapses and it's the only thing left, you're going to have to say, don't worry. Like I, I thought far enough ahead that, that I can take care of both of us or, or, or you and your family or, you know, and, and I know that that's, that's hard. It seems a little unfair, but you know, that that's kind of the responsibility that comes with wisdom and understanding um, is that most people don't have it. So like if you want to be a, a good benevolent benefactor of this wisdom that you've received, well, then you need to be planning for your future, not just for yourself, right? You need to be like, you need to be willing to recognize you need to have enough humility to say that most people are not smart enough to figure this out. I have figured it out. And therefore I am beholden to a great privilege um, to, to, to be a shepherd for other people, you know, like to, to protect them where I was able to see this coming and they weren't. Um, and I don't mean to say that like you have to buy a bunch of Bitcoin and then give it all to charity one day. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm just saying that we have a lot of responsibility as people that have the intellectual depth to get, understand this before it's, before it's a thing. Um, there's a lot of responsibility attached to that and people shouldn't take it lightly and they, they shouldn't make their life mission just about being right, just about winning the argument because it's about so much more than that. We have so much more responsibility than just convincing our brother-in-law that they're wrong about Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, look, you can be right all day long, but if you're the only one or you're isolated, you've isolated yourself over years of, of, of being right and telling people so, you know, no one's going to want to hang out with you anyway. So what are you going to trade <laughs> your Bitcoins for? Because everyone will just tell you to fuck off. Um, you know, that that website, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that, what the fuck happened in 1971. And, and just hearing you frame it like that too, I actually um, never really thought about it like that. But you just lay out the charts. Uh, people can jump on. There's no distractions. It's purely just the headline. And then off you go into the charts and you can scroll what seems like for ages and ages with chart after chart after chart, all pinpointing roughly 1971 and what happened after that. And there's just some dramatic, dramatic shifts um, that you can see. And then if you spend the time to distill that, and I've shared this with a lot of people that have tried to orange pill over the years and... I have to say I've missed more times than I've hit and I never fully understood. But the way you just outlined it then with respect to you're just presenting the data, you're not, there's no narrative attached to it. There's no paragraph saying this is what this explains and this is how you ought to think about it like this because of these things. It's just pure and straight just information in, in, your, in your face and you can do what you wish with it. But it, as you go along, the narrative does sort of emerge in your brain that something happened in 1971 and just what the fuck did so i don't know pull on that thread a little bit like if you can explain that for listeners what did happen in 1971 and why are all these um, charts so wild how long is this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah just give me the condensed uh, 101 i mean we, we can go for as long as we like but i'm mindful of your own time well i've got plenty of time um but this is a topic that requires the, – the short answer is that Richard Nixon closed 
the gold window that was open under the Bretton Woods Agreement, which allowed sovereign states that were participants of the Bretton Woods Agreement to redeem gold with the U.S. Treasury, um, redeem dollars in particular for gold. The United States dollar was pegged to gold, and every other nation state issued currencies which were pegged to the United States dollar, and dollars could be redeemed for gold at the U.S. Treasury. So you could, um, like, if you're at home and you're like, fuck, you know what, I need some gold, I've got these dollars, I'm just going to duck out to the Treasury, and you show up at the window and you're like, hey, got these dollars, I'll take the gold. No, thanks. you could not. You and I could not do that. Uh. Um, it was illegal, actually. From 1933, I want to say up until 1965, for United States citizens to own gold or gold certificates. Hmm. Um, they were only – so pretty much during the entirety of the Bretton Woods Agreement – Yeah, I believe that this was the case in the UK as well. During, during the vast majority of the Bretton Woods Agreement, um, settlement in specie, redemption of specie – at the U.S. Treasury was a right that was reserved only for sovereign states. It was not a right that was afforded to the average citizen. Um, they could not go take their $1 bill down to the U.S. Treasury and redeem it for um, specie. And I think that's a common misconception that a lot of people have, probably because like they, have, they haven't, like, and that's why I ask, like, how much time do we have? Because there's <laughs> a lot of dense history there. Um, as to like how, because how, how do you end up in a world where everyone is trading worthless pieces of paper as like the most scarce good in in the economy? Well, it it takes a lot of violence and it takes a lot of coercion and it takes a lot of crafty lawyers and bankers and politicians uh, to get you to that point. Uh, Rothbard wrote a fantastic book about it called "The History of Money and Banking in the United States." It's a it's a phenomenal book. I wrote an article based around that book called "Fiat Lux," um, which you could find on my website. BitcoinEchoChamber.com, um, but the the history is is very nuanced, very de very in depth. But ultimately, monetary expansion is downstream of fiscal expansion. Governments want to spend more money than they have because they're financially incentivized to solve problems for special interest groups that they represent, and they do that by spending money. Uh, because governments don't produce anything, they don't create anything of value. All they can do is take money and spend it. And it's, of course, in a politician's best interest to spend as much money as possible because the more money they spend, the more they can satisfy special interest groups. Um, and governments always expand the money supply downstream of uh, expanding the government's access to uh, expanding its balance sheet, expanding its budget, uh, expanding its access to, to credit. And that's basically what happened in 1971 was the government decided that they wanted to um, spend money you know, without the consequences of have, having to pay for everything up front. And they didn't want the bill to come due and, and drain the United States Treasury of all of its gold, which was already happening. So Richard Nixon closed the gold window and it effectively created an era of unlimited money and credit expansion, unchecked fiscal expansion in terms of like government expenditure and unchecked expansion of the bureaucratic state uh, because, it, because it had unlimited funding. Right. And then the consequences of that are as effectively the clown world, in short, of what we see around us right now. Totally, yeah. Yeah. And that just goes not even to just the silly stuff that you see, you know, online or on the news, but in the sort of the day-to-day -day stuff where, say, uh, if you're a household and you've got two people working, um, 
you're and you're still you're still struggling to sort of make ends meet and you've got two people going out spending time away from the home putting kids in daycare or whatever it is that the, the situation calls for and and still effectively struggling to try and get on whereas you know their grandparents could probably run the whole house off one single wage and um you know trade-offs there's probably other things socio-culturally that occurred around those times but the point is is that you could at least economically manage a household off of one income as opposed to two and and still be relatively comfortable i guess my my wife and i do it and it took like years of planning like it was it it was very it was a very deliberate decision it was like a decision that we made after having my first kid when the when the question came up of you know, are we going to send her to daycare or are we going to, um, you know, like try to keep you home and, and give up your career as like a nurse, um, to, to have you home, like looking after the kids, or are we going to pay someone else to watch, to raise our kids for us? And like, it, it was a very like deliberate, difficult, financially painful decision to make that took like a lot of planning and sacrificing, but it, it is still doable. Um, but you know, you gotta be willing to work really hard for your kids um, to, to make it a reality. But I do think it's probably one of the most important things that Bitcoin has enabled me to do is get to the point where I was financially secure enough. You know, it wasn't all Bitcoin because part of it is like just my ability to buckle down and like learn and work hard and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not me tooting my own horn. That's me saying, hey, you know, if you want that kind of independence, you have to be willing to do the work. Um, you know, like the, the last year I was in the military, I was like, coming home every day and spending three hours learning coding so that I could make sure that when I got out of the military, like I could provide for my family. Um, but, but it, it is still, it is still doable. Like it is still doable. It's not like it used to be. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean it can't be done. And, and I think people need to really buckle down and like evaluate their priorities and ask themselves like, what is the most important thing for me to focus my time and energy on in life? And like, what should I, what, what should I be willing to sacrifice for my kids? And I think, um, that there's a lot of like, for me, at least for, I know for my family, there's, it's been a very rewarding to, um, kind of go back in time a little bit like that and, mm. and, um, buck the modern, um, you know, working girl, mom, boss stereotype and like literally getting my wife home, having my wife in the kitchen, making fresh bread for the house every day is amazing. I I cannot describe (laughs) if you have never experienced this, anybody listening, it's, it's phenomenal. Having a woman, having a wife that's a homemaker, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's wonderful. And she's so happy and I'm so happy and my kids are so happy and I can't imagine having it any other way. It is achievable. You can do it. You just have to be willing to really work hard and, and find solutions like Bitcoin that, that help make these types of things possible. Well, that's the thing though. Like now that there is that option to do that, it's like, it's like a way to, reach that particular goal if you if you can you still have to work hard at it but let's just say that yes it's possible now but we could have um a whole bunch more alignment on um what what do you call them like family values i guess um and these aren't just like um these aren't just sort of this is the problem with the modern world, man. You say the word family values and you feel like you have to justify it. Basically, it's yeah, just no, like, you, you feel like a, like a misogynist bigot. Yeah, you know, it's just stupid. My point is that, like, as you said, like, what, what could be better than having, like, 
you know, um, a home that's being made that you've got fresh food and, and like, I mean, the smell of bread, man, like is, is pretty gnarly, particularly if you bake well, and, it from And my home. wife's way happier than all the girls she knows that, that have to go back and work like 40, 50 hours a week and then come home and, and clean up the house and take care of the kids and cook the meals. Um, they're miserable. They hate it, but she loves it, right? Because she just gets to focus on being a mom instead of trying to please her employer, you know, instead of being a W2 slave. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a radically different way of looking at life. And, you know, it's quite possible that some of the people listening have tuned out at this point, you know, because of that, but that's okay. Like, you know, they don't have to agree with everything I say. Um, but there, there's better ways of doing things. And, uh, we threw a lot of, we threw a lot of the bathwater out in the last 50 years. And I think it's important that we really kind of like dig in and be willing to do the hard work of, of, fixing you know what we've broken not just the money but like the the value what do we value um like societally like as a family unit what do we value um i think that that's a really important question it's a question that the reason that like bitcoin helps with this is because it forces you to ask the question what do i value and if you're if you follow that rabbit hole deep enough like you'll you'll find that the answer should be you know i value time with my family. I value, um, who my children become one day, you know, maybe you're not even married, you know, like you should value, um, improve, you should value yourself enough to be preparing to, um, deliver the best possible person you can to whoever you hope to one day marry. Right. Because if you want to marry someone of value, you have to be of value yourself. You have to have something to offer. Like, so those are really important things to think about that I think that we've totally abandoned in this world of like swipe right if you like me um, type of social interaction. Oh, without a doubt. I've been reading a bit of Eric Kaysen's Crypto Sovereignty because he mentions Heidegger a lot and being in time and I've sort of dove down that rabbit hole a little bit. And um, one of the conclusions I've sort of drawn from all of that is that um, this idea of being in the world is to be the most authentic self you can in the present as you strive towards the future. But the only way to do that, the pathway to do that, is to first know thyself. And if you don't know who you are and you can't create value just for yourself, how do you, how are you able to then be of service to others and create value for them? And it's like this step function that you have to go through. And a lot of people get to a point in life where they don't still know who they are. And so they're just being buffeted around. Like they've got the sail up but no keel. And no balance. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's like it all comes back to knowing who you are first such that you can then go out and present yourself to the world and provide the value that you have in whatever unique skills and, and uh, interests that you have that you can synthesize to, to provide. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And the reason that most people don't know who they are is not so much that they don't know who they are. Um, because like everybody knows who they are because you spend more time with yourself than anyone else. You know who you are better than anyone. Um, the problem is that we like to present ourselves as something different than what we actually are. We don't, we are terrified of the prospect of everyone that we know finding out who we actually are. So we pretend to be something entirely different than who we actually are. So like most, for most people, it's not a matter of not knowing who they are. It's being terrified uh, of how much they despise that person that they see when they look in the mirror. And the very first step is, is recognizing that depravity. Um, 
that, that, that you kind of hate yourself and being okay with that. Like there, there's, there's, there's some peace there to be found in that. And like, some of it is spiritual. Like I know for me, at least some of it is spiritual, but like, it's not all spiritual. Like part of it is just being okay with saying, Hey, I'm kind of an idiot. I'm kind of a dumbass. I'm kind of a weakling. I'm kind of lazy. And, and recognizing like where those areas of improvement exist in your life and, and really focusing on them and, and trying to like intentionally improve. Uh, but you have to first admit, you know, that like there's parts of you that are, that need improvement um, before you, you're actually willing to take those steps. Yeah, exactly right. And then the idea of Bitcoin. Sorry, you just got really loud. I don't know if that was on me, my end or your end. Uh, sorry, dude. Oh, you just went back to normal. Okay, okay. never mind. There's that idea in, in that, that crops up a lot in the conversations that I have on discovering Bitcoin where um, people pass through that orange filter and it, it challenges them to look at themselves more clearly. I mean, there's, um, there's, a, there's a pleb, a Bitcoin pleb here in Oz that uh, goes by the name of Izzy. His name's Hodler's Way on, on Twitter. But he says Bitcoin is a mirror and it's like, it just allows you to, to pass filter and wipe a whole bunch of stuff off. It's like you got bugs or something all over the, the windshield and you clear them all off once you sort of dive or pass through this filter of, of Bitcoin and, and sort of allow yourself to understand that you don't understand a heck of a lot going on in the world. And um, here's something, it's, 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 it's something to anchor you and sort of strive towards, even though it's just this protocol but it aligns all of these different incentives in such a way that it enables you to start to become a better version of yourself. I think mm -hmm. that's how I feel anyway. Um, sure. Yeah. I could be see that. Yeah, <laughs> I believe that. How do you explain Bitcoin? I don't. Nice. Okay. <laughs> like I'll be honest, like truthfully, honestly, I very rarely do. Um, and, and maybe that's like a bad thing on my part, but like oftentimes, like when someone asks me, what do you do for a living? And I say, oh, I work in software. And they say, oh, cool. Who do you work for? And I say, well, I work for myself. And they say, oh, okay. So what kind of work do you do? Like, what, what do you work on? And I'm like, oh, Bitcoin stuff. And they're like, oh, I <laughs> nine times out of 10, they are, have already made up their mind about like who I am and what I work on and what my life is like. And they're like, oh, like... The, the common thing that I get is that like kind of like a little bit of like eyebrow raising and then someone does that, you know, that wave motion with your hand where you're like up and down and up and down. <laughs> they do that. And then I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a roller coaster for sure. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about how I've been trying to figure out what's wrong with my software program for the last two days. And that's why it's up and down, but they're like, oh yeah, no, the price of Bitcoin is up and down. <laughs> um, and that's, that's gotta be very taxing for you on a daily basis. And I'm like, no, not really. Um, but if I were to explain Bitcoin, I think actually the best explanation that I ever heard on this, the best like one-liner was from a guy named Murad. And this was back in like 2017 or 2018. And he went on Anthony Pompliano's podcast and did an amazing podcast interview. Um, I, I cannot stand Anthony Pompliano. And Murad lost like, blew up his venture capital funder 
trading fund or whatever, trading crap coins with leverage or something like that. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. I'm not endorsing these people. I do like Murad, but I'm not endorsing these people so much as I'm saying he had a terrific one-liner and it was that Bitcoin is unstoppable pieces of digital gold flying around the internet on an unstoppable distributed PayPal or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that, that that's such a poignant like one-liner as to like what Bitcoin actually is, is that it's like, Un- unstoppable pieces of digital gold flying around the internet like email essentially well it is like email nowadays because you can get lightning uh email addresses right and you can send effectively you know sats to an email address which is pretty m- amazing when you think about it and the yeah. zapping that's going on in nostra and all that sort of stuff I guess that and it's frame- pro- programmable too which is like that's that's only largely what I work on is like right. I'm trying to build apps an app in particular that takes advantage of a lot of the the new programmability that's like emerging from Bitcoin through like TapScript and MiniScript and those types of things um, that that make that that enable like this new world of of possibilities for how we interact with money and how we think about money and how we think about saving our money and storing our money that were not possible like in an analog world. Is there anything that you can share with regards to what that? that looks like what that it's called uh is there any yeah uh so my project's called arctica it's open source and it's free so like there's nothing there's no secrets um it's a, quite complicated i've talked about it in depth like in i did a series of dev vlogs that no longer exist um unfortunately because my youtube account had gotten deleted but i have been slowly kind of rebuilding some content on this uh i have done some writing on it as well but like it's essentially um, a brand, like a totally different way of, of storing Bitcoin than like the way people do it right now. It's like I've built this software program that just runs on the desktop um, that that will turn SD ca- any SD cards or like USB sticks into hardware wallets. So they're like you get you basically build your own open source hardware wallets from scratch, like with my software. And it's it's designed to be used by like non-technical users. So what it's going to do the, right now, the the way it works is um, it really only has one feature, and it, you set up the application, you turn seven different SD cards into their own little hard open source hardware wallets, and it, each one is part of like a X of seven multisig quorum. Hmm. So there's like a two of seven wallet. So like when you plug one of them into a computer, you have to reboot the computer and it boots into it like its own operating system. And you start up the wallet and that that each wallet is one key of the seven keys in the multi-signature scheme. So you boot up my app and it lets you, takes you into the Bitcoin wallet and you can sign for like the two of seven as long as you have two or two of the hardware wallets that you've made um, available. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to like really change up um, the way people custody Bitcoin, because I think that it's it's a pretty sad state of affairs out there right now. Like there isn't a solution that I'm comfortable recommending to people. Like when I get that dreaded question in my um, DMs or whatever, and someone says, "Hey, I've just finally I finally get Bitcoin. I'm starting to get into it. Um, what do you recommend I do for self custody?" I hate that question because I don't feel like I have a good answer. So I'm trying to like build something. Um, that 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 is is a little bit better for people than some of the current solutions out there that I think are either uh, they compromise on security, they compromise on privacy, or they're just flat out bad. They're just flat out bad practice. And and I, and I think that that we can do better with open source. 
such an intriguing concept. Is the is the fact that it's seven? Is that just to build in some redundancy? So you you only need maybe two to sign, even though there's seven. Maybe you could allocate four to sign <coughs> or something like that. But you know, yeah. So the way that I've worked it up right now is that the each s each wallet. So like obviously you can take my hardware wallets and like make them do anything you want. But the way I'm building my application because this is all open source, anybody could just like take my project and fork it and, and make the wallets behave differently. Like you could make it a one of seven, but the way mine works is it's two wallets in one. So there's like one set of keys, but there's a two of seven wallet. And then there's a five of seven wallet with a four year time lock. So the five of seven wallet with the four year time lock is obviously like very high security. Like those funds are very hard to move, even for the person that owns all the That's keys. Hardcore. Um, and that's like intentional, but it also what this what this product what uh, Miniscript is enabling for me to do is bake in uh, decay of the thre- spending threshold. So the way that I'm planning to do this is kind of give the give the hardware give the wallets themselves like a soft shelf life. So they start out at like five of seven. So there's a five of seven with the time lock and a two of seven with no time lock. So it's like you have like your wallet that's secure but kind of easy easier quote unquote to spend from Mm -hmm. and then you have like your hardcore wallet that's like an iron vault that nobody can get into barely even you you know that's for like life-saving type money like you want to keep make sure no one can come into your house and put a gun to your head and get that money like you physically couldn't provide it if they wanted to so that the idea there is that you're making yourself an unprofitable target to, to a sophisticated attacker but um the uh the really cool thing about Miniscript is that it enables me to like bake decays into these spending thresholds. So at the outset, it might be a two of seven and a five of seven, but say in four years, it might be a three of seven and a one of seven. Hmm. And then I can kind of eventually have everything decay down to like a one of seven, even if I want. So we can finally solve the problem of um, inheritance where I, I can have the security of multisig um, where I'm, ha- I have like the, my, the majority of my life savings is in this five of seven account that no one can access. I can give one of the hardware wallets to my next of kin and know with certainty that at some point in the future, they'd be able to access that money. Um, even if it took a few years, like if I were to suddenly die or something like that, right. without, without giving them access to it today. Um, the other thing that I've done is I've also, all of these hard open source hardware wallets, they're encrypted. So you can't just like take one of these wallets and like open it up and figure out not, not just the key, like it it encrypts the key, but it also encrypts the multi-sig descriptor. So you can't just like open up this wallet and figure out what my Bitcoin balance is. You'd have to be able to break the GPG encryption, which would be like pretty much impossible. Wow. It's probably not totally impossible, but like it's theoretically very expensive. So it's not uh, very unlikely. It's a um, high deterrent, really. It's like, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. So, so these devices are like totally encrypted with GPG, um, which is like a huge step up from like the average hardware wallet that runs like a secure element with code on it that you can't audit yourself. Um, it's like just, just, yeah, like I said, it's just like totally trying to approach Bitcoin self custody from like a totally different angle than it's ever been approached. Far out. We've got uh, we had Peter Dunworth on um, a couple episodes back, and he specializes a lot in inheritance planning and, and things like that for individuals. And you know, obviously, there's solutions like Unchained and that sort of thing. But they all rely upon, I guess, 
you know, a third somewhat party. Somewhat of a trusted third party, yeah. Right, somewhat of a trusted third party, whereas this is like like a real sovereign. Yes, um, this will be, no, you will not trust anybody with this solution. You will, it will be all free and open source, and it will be, uh, I think it will really change the way people think about self-custody. Yeah, particularly if it's, you know, relatively easy to Yes, it is, uh, you, you, you boot it up and you click, click a button one button at a time like i've i've never have like a screen like during the initial setup there's never like a screen with more than like two buttons and like a few sentences and you just like you click a button you do a thing if it tells you maybe it'll tell you to like insert an sd card or a usb stick or a cd you do that and you click a button and then like you you click a button and then you click a button and then you take that sd card out and then you click a button and then you put another sd card in and you click a button and you just basically just do that and it just does everything for you and um yeah, there's a lot of that like non-technical UX missing from Bitcoin, like that 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 extra bit of love for the non-technical user that I think we can we can bridge that gap. But it is not easy. It's it's hard. Oh, yeah. Developing UX-centered applications on Bitcoin is not easy. No, but that's 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 all coming. There's people working on that all the time, and that's really the 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 thing that we kind of all need the the fact that I'm just such a stubborn asshole and will just try and force my a way to figure something out like I'm non-technical completely but I just force myself to understand it such that I can use these tools that we have available so this mm-hmm. sounds like something right up my alley um I guess I just one question off of that what happens if you lose one of the SDs is it incumbent upon you to secure them in different locations and so on and so forth I mean yeah, so that's kind of um, another part of this, how this is different than the average, like, you know, if you just buy a cold card or a Trezor or a Ledger or whatever, it doesn't, like, come with instructions. I mean, it does kind of, like, it tells you, you know, here's how you set up your seed and make sure you write it down and here's how you, like, log in or whatever, but it doesn't, like, tell you what to do next. You know what I mean? So, like, what what my app is supposed to do, it, it doesn't quite do this yet, but... I'm still kind of working through some of the difficulties here, but essentially what my app is going to do is say, okay, you've now created successfully created hardware wallet one. Um, take this and put it in your home safe. Okay, you've successfully created hardware wallet two. Take this and hide it in the wall in your attic or in underneath your floorboards in your attic or something like that. Okay, you've cre- created hardware wallet three. Take this and give it to Aunt Jane. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not saying it, do, it doesn't have to be, you're obviously not going to want to do exactly what it says, but it's supposed to give you like a general idea of how secure is this supposed to be um, with the idea being that the majority, only two will be in the same geographic location and the rest of them will be like spread out geographically. Right. Um, it's it's kind of like a concierge service that's not, you know. No yes, one, yeah. very handholdy, but handholdy in a way where we can, optimize for security and privacy um, without like sacrificing on the advantages of like uh, open source software and and those types of things. So yeah, it'll be like very, um, it'll be like trying to make the user think as little as possible about any of it other than the fact that like, hey, I want to receive Bitcoin or hey, I want to spend Bitcoin. And there's plugging in the device and the device telling them exactly what to do at every step of the way. That's, That's the goal. Yeah, there's still that bridge of of um, responsibility that that's required, and a lot of people, you know, let's face it, a lot of people do like to use custodial solutions, like Wallet of Satoshi, for instance. Um, but they're making it easier for people 
to take on that personal responsibility, to take on that sovereignty is, is crucial. And um, oh, what a cool project. You'll have to um, fling me a, a, a link or something like that and I'll throw it in the show notes alongside uh, the What the Fuck Happened in 1971 link and the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Uh, sure, I have an alpha demo video that I'll send you. It's because I'm still in like early alpha, but the the wallet works, so it's really cool. Yeah, the, cool. the hardware wallet works, and like the software wallet works, but it's I still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, well, that's awesome, man. Send it, send it to me, and I'll um I'll chuck it all in the show notes because it's it sounds fascinating. Sure, I'm not sure whether to call you clown or heavily armed clown or hack. Uh, I'll just say heavily. A lot armed of people clown. call me hack. That's kind of been like the common name is hack a uh a derogatory term over there in the states like over here in australia if you call someone a hack i mean i didn't call you a hack you are yeah hack. yeah no i know what you mean yeah <laughs> it is it's not like a common term in like western english but it it yeah i know what you're talking about uh, i think that's more of like a like a british english thing actually yeah like I think oh so. you're a, you're a hack you don't know what you're talking about um but I don't care. Like, don't worry. You're not gonna like upset, hurt my feelings. <laughs> There's no K on that end, so it's not the proper word. But anyway, hack. This has been a like a, a mind bending uh, conversation with regards to, well, man, all sorts of things. To be honest, um, just the ideas of of learning, going through school, and being a contrarian, all that sort of stuff. Fascinating. And then you know, we ended it in in your, the projects that you're working on this this Arctica. Which sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. So it's all gone in the show notes. I just wanted to say thanks very much for spending your scarce time, finite energy, uh, discussing your tale of discovering Bitcoin or Genesis story on discovering Bitcoin. Thank you. Thanks for having me, D.